Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In December of 1957, a young man named Charles got an amazing opportunity. He had a chance to play his music on The Ed Sullivan Show, which was broadcast coast to coast, Sunday nights on CBS. Now I'm going to have those drums left right there because now coming out here, four citizens of the sovereign state of Texas. Charles had recently turned 21, and he was already a big star. And that day, in December of 1957, he made a huge splash on The Ed Sullivan Show with a band called The Crickets. But Charles Hawley didn't generally go by his given name. He went by his nickname, Buddy. Well, that'll be the day when you say goodbye, yeah. What most viewers at home thought they were hearing was the emerging sound of rock and roll. And they were. But what they were seeing was revolutionary, too. It was something unorthodox hanging around Holly's neck. An electric guitar. So by 1957, there had been electric guitars. There had been even solid-body electric guitars, which is what Buddy Holly was playing. But what he was playing specifically, a Fender Stratocaster, was still very new to the world. That's Ian S. Port, author of the book The Birth of Loud, Leo Fender, Les Paul, and the guitar pioneering rivalry that shaped rock and roll. It had been released only in October of um, 1954, and it was such a radical departure from everything that had come before it and such a completely space-age instrument that it was a shock to people. Port argues, sure, electric guitars were technological innovations, but more than that, they changed our culture. When musicians like the Beatles picked them up, they could become scandalous. Oh, yeah, tell you something. I think you'll understand. When I say that something, I want to Electric guitars would fracture the music scene. They would light up some people's worlds. But at the heart of the story of electric guitars, there's the story of two friends who were also rivals, Leo Fender and Les Paul, men whose names would be inscribed on guitars and who had no idea the chain of events they would start. You know, Les Paul designed his guitar for jazz, and here it became the signature hard rock instrument. You know, Leo Fender designed his for country, and here they became, you know, the Buddy Holly and the Beatles and this kind of like jangle guitar sound. I mean, that was so shocking to me to see how innovators sometimes can't even comprehend what what effects they're loosing on the world. The story of those innovators, in some ways, makes that night on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1957 even more striking. Leo Fender, whose guitar Buddy Holly was playing, couldn't play the guitar. He couldn't play any instruments at all. Les Paul, who was his big rival in this race, was by contrast a dedicated guitarist. But what he really was, was a wannabe star. What I did is first create the idea of an electric guitar. That's Les Paul remembering the project he started as a kid in the late 1920s in Wisconsin. He was singing and playing at a barbecue stand when he got a note from a guy who was sitting in his car listening to him, just like lots of other people in the audience. He just said, read your voice in harmonica and your jokes are okay, but your guitar is not loud enough. (laughs) And that 
made me go home and think about it. I said, I have a critic here that's got a good point. So Les Paul gets this note, and even as a young kid, he's driven. He wants to be better, he wants to sound better, and he's trying to think how to make his guitar louder. So one day, when he was about 13 years old, the story goes, he took his acoustic guitar and at the same time took the phonograph needle from his father's uh, phonograph, from his record player, which is basically the part that amplifies the, the vibrations on the record, he jammed that needle into the top of his guitar, into the wood, so that it would pick up the vibrations from the wood of his guitar. And then he plugged the other end of that into a radio, which is basically a primitive amplifier. So he kind of electrified his acoustic guitar at 13 years old to play for this kind of roadside barbecue stand, and voila, it worked. Suddenly the people in the back of the parking lot could hear his guitar as well as his voice and his harmonica. Paul was living at a time when amplification of the human voice had become popular on a massive scale. It was a moment when, for a kid living near Milwaukee, technology was opening doors. And according to music journalist Ian Port, Les Paul began to see a world of possibilities. One of the things you have to remember when you're talking about people like Les Paul and like Leo Fender is that they had witnessed the arrival of radio, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a huge, that was the internet of its day. I mean, from the very beginnings as a way to transmit Moore's code in the teens to, you know, by the late 20s, it was a live broadcast. So if you're suddenly, you're sitting on a farm in Wisconsin, you can hear a boxing match in New York. I mean, that was unbelievable to people. And it really captured the imagination of especially that generation of young people who grew up with it, like Les Paul. Well, and they had also seen the electrification of America, right. a lot of those people, of their own town. Like that things had totally changed and what had done it was electricity. Maybe not that surprising that what they did was take a lovely instrument like the guitar and thought, but more people could hear this if we just put electricity, you know, we just paired it up with electricity. Exactly. I mean, it's funny if you go back and look at the kind of popular mechanics magazines and stuff from then. I mean, people thought of electricity as kind of a cure-all. You know, they were looking for an electric solution to basically every problem that confronted humanity. So when electric guitars first started to catch on, was it folks in rock and roll, you know, who just liked them immediately? So the electric guitar as we know it, the solid body models that are the kind of discussion in my book, those came out basically in the early 1950s, so just a few years mm. before Buddy Holly. Mm. And the interesting thing about them, and one of the things that drew me to this story, is that they weren't invented for rock and roll at all. You know, rock and roll was not even on the horizon when the electric guitar pioneers kind of mm. started creating them. They were built for country musicians and jazz musicians. They, you know, they, the creators of these instruments didn't even like rock and roll when it finally did arrive. That when people heard, you know, this kind of sound coming out of Buddy Holly, but also other musicians, there are lots of musicians by that time, by the late 50s, who were into electric guitars, was this, I think, as it's often cast, a kind of generational divide where young people were like, yeah, this is great. And old people were like, mm, I, I don't like this new sound. 
You know, I think it really was, but it was it was not just the guitars themselves, the presence of them. It was how they were used. Hmm. There were other people, like, for instance, players on the Lawrence Welk show, you know, playing the same model, but in a really? very different way. And, yeah, in, in a way that was completely palatable to the kind of older generation. It was really the, the objection of the older generation and what the kids loved so much was the kind of three-chord, energetic kind of bop and rock and sound that you hear Buddy Holly play. So... To anybody who thinks, how could one instrument, there are so many instruments out there, how could one instrument change American culture, not just be a technological innovation, which it it surely was, but be something bigger? What's the argument you would make to say, no, no, this had pretty big waves? Sure. Two two things mainly. For one, the electric guitar and the guitar in general is a pretty easy instrument to play. There's not a huge barrier to, to kind of becoming basically functional on it. Almost anyone can learn three or four chords. So it was very democratic. It didn't mm. take a lot for people to adopt it. The second thing was that because of amplification and the advanced advancing technology behind these electric guitars of the 1950s, they were able to get so loud and they were able to basically replace whole regiments of musicians, horn sections, string sections, you know, all of those things that were kind of essential to music in the 1930s and 40s. Mm. By the 1950s, you needed four people to make right. the same amount of noise that 12 people could have made. Right, you know? right. So that was a key part of it, too. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about, we talked a little bit about Les Paul. Let's talk about his rival, uh, Leo Fender. They were friends a little bit. They were rivals. Um, How did Leo Fender come to the idea of, you know what we should do? Electricity plus guitars. That is a winning formula. Yeah, so so Fender started tinkering with radios from about the time he was 13. And it was, by all accounts, kind of the thing he was best at in the world. He wasn't a great student, wasn't a great good, very good at sports, but he could really fix a radio like no one else. And so he kind of tried more conventional careers, but by early middle age, he was repairing radios professionally in a little shop in Fullerton, California, which is about 25 miles southeast of Los Angeles, where he had grown up. Now, an amplifier for a guitar is pretty similar technologically, especially back then, to a radio. So musicians would have primitive guitar amplifiers, because electric guitars did exist by this point, not in the form we know them now, but in an earlier, more primitive form. And musicians would bring Leo their amplifiers to his radio shop, and he would fix them. Finally, he started building them, and then he sort of started from there building actual electric guitars to go with them as a kind of complete product line. Hmm. So he really came from the technical side, from the radio side. He was a master of circuitry and, and you know, soldering irons and, and that the workbench, and that was kind of his realm. Now, were they friends before they realized actually were kind of uh, competitors here trying to design the best electric guitar? Like, was this friendship before it was rivalry, or was it always kind of like they knew they were had to you know, be rivals here. They were friends. I mean, I think it's hard to imagine now, but the electric guitar was such a minor kind of thing then. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, they weren't envisioning that, oh, we'll come up with this design and we'll sell a billion of them. It was like, oh, we're kind of all tinkering around trying to find a solution for Les wants it for himself, Leo wants it for the country guys. And, you know, they were two people who were happy to sit and talk about, you know, speaker design and mm-hmm. equalization and voltage, mm-hmm. you know, and all that for hours and hours. And there aren't that many people like that in the world. And so for them to kind of bounce around those kind of ideas made them friends initially. I do think there was always a kind of note of competition between them, you know, friendly to sort of see who could 
who could come up with something cooler. But it wasn't until the solid body guitar really became a commercial product that their friendship became rivalrous. Hmm. So, so let's break here for a minute. And when we come back, we'll talk the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, and how in a single polarizing moment, Bob Dylan might have changed music forever. Um, if you want to hear all the songs from this segment, we've got them on our Spotify playlist, which is at our website, innovationhub.org. And this right here, what you're hearing is Bye Bye Blues from Merle Travis, who is one of the folks that Leo Fender worked with. I'll be back after a break with Ian Esport, the author of The Birth of Loud. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. there was a huge concert in Santa Monica. It was taped from different angles. There were all sorts of popular singers from the Supremes to James Brown. And a cut-down film of it was shown a couple months later in movie theaters across the U.S. the Teenage Awards Music International show, and it was a big deal in a country where a huge number of people were now teenagers. So not surprisingly, some of the most famous people in the world showed up on that stage in Santa Monica. There was even a special song composed for the show, noting that bands had traveled from places as far-flung as Liverpool and Tennessee. Some are flying and some are driving from Liverpool to Tennessee. As it turned out, that wasn't quite right, because the Rolling Stones, who were among the performers, weren't from Liverpool. The songwriters must have gotten them confused with the Beatles, who weren't at the concert. But anyhow, the Teenage Awards Music International show was a great reflection of how music had changed over the past few years. And a lot of that change was because of a relatively new creation, the electric guitar. using Fender electric guitars, named after their inventor, Leo Fender. So Leo Fender liked things to be bright and punchy, and, you know, sometimes that meant that his sound was a little bit thin. Ian S. Port is the author of The Birth of Loud, Leo Fender, Les Paul, and the guitar-pioneering rivalry that shaped rock and roll. But you can hear in the Beach Boys sound there, and they've got, you know, um, a Fender electric guitar, a Fender electric bass, and Fender amplifiers, that it's just bright, it's crisp, it's almost watery, too, because there's a, a Fender reverb unit that they're using there, which is kind of like an echo. It's an effect that Leo Fender kind of perfected for the electric guitar, although it did exist previously. And so you can just hear, you know, there's a thinness, a brightness, a kind of precision there, a jangle, we might call it. That's kind of the hallmark of the Fender sound. By 1964, and this concert, Leo Fender's main rival in creating a new sound for rock and roll was Les Paul. Fender and Paul had been friends, but they had very different visions for how music should sound. And now that rock and roll was big, there was a lot of money at stake. One thing that Fender and Paul had in common, though, was that they were both around 50 at this point, much, much older than the kids at the Teenage Awards show. And even though Fender and Paul loved music, 
it was hard to hear what their inventions were being used for. This stuff wasn't their style at all. That was the Rolling Stones playing Gibson Les Paul guitars, and Ian Port says what Paul had created was a pretty different sound from what the Beach Boys were offering up. So the Gibson Les Paul, as as Keith Richards was one of the first to discover, puts out a kind of really heavy, thick, molten, kind of snarling sound. Uh, much different, much thicker, much less trebly, more mid-range heavy. And you can hear it there that it's the the kind of powerful pickups in the Gibson Les Paul are pushing the amplifier into distortion, which giving it's giving it that kind of rough, ragged sound that you know, of course, the Stones um, use so much. So mm-hmm. it's it's thicker, it's warmer, it's heavier. Yeah, that's really the Les Paul sound. So is it just like coincidence that the that the band that's kind of known for being more like clean cut and these sort of upbeat tunes, the Beach Boys, are using the cleaner sound? And the the stones are, you know, which are this kind of like more sort of sexy, a little bit more ragtag kind of look um, that they are using a different kind of sound. Is that were different bands drawn because they were like, this is the image of my band and this is what I want my sound to reflect? I think in, in a sense, yeah. I mean, you know, the Beach Boys were from Southern California and the image of Southern California back then was very kind of like clean cut, kind of you know, the surfer the surfer boy image, right? right? And, and, and you know, there was a kind of propriety there even. Um, and the Stones were definitely trying to be the bad boys of rock and roll. You know, they were deliberately putting forth that image. And, you know, Keith Richards, I think, discovered or helped discover that the Gibson Les Paul pushed amplifiers into that distorted sound that gave it kind of a nasty sound. And they were trying to emulate the sound of Chicago blues records from mm. a decade earlier. <laughs> Gonna make pretty women's jump and shout. Then the world wanna know what this all about. But you know I'm here. Everybody knows And those musicians had discovered the same thing and, and pushed their amplifiers to similarly distort. I wonder, we think so much about like people actually playing these electric guitars and the impact that that had, but how hard was it or how did the people who built these guitars go about building them? How easy was it to craft these things? So the interesting thing to me is that for Fender, for instance, it was very difficult because Leo Fender was not a musician. Um, he didn't have a kind of like staff of what they call luthiers, you know, people who make stringed instruments for a living. Huh. So he really kind of had to figure out how to cut one out of a board, basically, and come up hmm. with a neck that fit the human hand well. He had a lot of help and input from a group of musicians who were hanging out at the Fender factory, you know, soaking up free gear in exchange for their input on, oh, you should move hmm. the pickups over there. You should, you know, move this angle here. But especially, you know, when they were developing the solid body guitar, it wasn't easy. You know, mm. it was it was a radical new departure from what guitars had been before then, both for Fender and for Gibson. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Ian S. Port, author of The Birth of Loud, Leo Fender, Les Paul, and the guitar pioneering rivalry that shaped rock and roll. Let's talk a little bit about the controversy that emerged. Um, when 
uh, electric guitars, I guess you could say just totally went mainstream. I mean, clearly people were playing them even in the 40s, but, you know, in the 50s. But in the 1960s, very famously at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival, Bob Dylan performed an electric version of things that he had done in an acoustic way before. Talk a little bit about this moment, which is so famous when Dylan went electric, and like what the what was the story and what was the fallout? Sure. So, you know, Dylan had performed at the Newport Folk Festival, I think three years in a row, maybe four. And in 1965, it was a folk festival. So right. people sang along. People came with acoustic guitars. You know, it was kind of like sitting, people played on a stage, but the kind of atmosphere was we're all sitting around in a circle singing songs together and everyone's kind of equal. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. So in 1965, Dylan shows up in a leather jacket and sunglasses, and he's bringing this band that he's used to record Highway 61 Revisited. And it's a full electric band, and Dylan's standing there holding a Stratocaster. And so at the peak of the festival, his you know most anticipated set, everyone's there to see Dylan. He gets up, and he's got this crazy rock and roll band behind him, and he starts playing these songs. Loud and the, the you know public address system at the festival is not really designed to handle this because no one's you know frankly really done this before this kind of loud folk rock music and you know by all accounts it wasn't just that he was electrified that was so scandalous it was that the sound was terrible you know it was mixed badly mm. it was incredibly loud blasting the people in the front row and so I think the the greatest significance of it is. You know, Dylan didn't just go electric. He signified his own kind of independence and departure mm. that night. And the electric guitar was definitely a symbolic and physical part of it. People felt just like, oh, he's putting this distance between us. We can't sing along to Dylan at Maggie's mm-hmm. Farm when he's blasting us with his Stratocaster. And so, you know, from there, that was when kind of the whole Dylan Judas thing came about and people were kind of decrying him and saying that he'd sold out and then he deserved to, you know, go hang out in the the like teenage rock and roll circuit and wasn't a serious folky anymore um, and all of those things. What do you think was the reverberation of that in the music world, you know, beyond just like this one person and their career? So the interesting is the most interesting reverberation to me is that before Dylan going electric, you know, electric rock and roll had been seen as kind of pop teen pop music, you know, it wasn't really taken very seriously. Folk music was taken seriously. It was intellectual. It was educated. It was concerned about what was going on in the world. From the moment that Dylan went electric in 65, you can really see that suddenly electric guitars became a kind of vehicle for serious music in the way that they hadn't before. You know, you had Dylan, you had people like the Birds, and they were developing this folk rock sound. And that really gave a kind of heftiness, a kind of weight and gravitas to electric guitar music that hadn't been there. So... As the 1960s went on and a whole bunch of different kinds of musicians picked up electric guitars, my impression is that people like Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles, all sorts of folks, that they started pushing the technology 
to places that Leo Fender and Les Paul probably had no idea it was going to go. Totally. That's what's so interesting to me is that, you know, Leo and Les not only had no idea what people were going to actually use these instruments for, I mean, they couldn't even conceive of, of what Jimi Hendrix would do with the Stratocaster. And all of the little details he would find to play with and explore on it. But then when those musicians like the Beatles and Hendrix finally came out and did this and and started kind of ruling the world, you know, Leo and Fender and Les Paul didn't even like it. You know, that wasn't the sound they wanted. They were kind of alienated by it and shocked by it. It was that because you think like basically they were part of a different generation and that was not their music. Like that was not the music they grew up with and felt okay about. Totally. It was a different generation, and the values were so different. I mean, you know, for Les, musicianship, skill, you know, kind of like subtlety had been this huge— it taken him years to master his instrument. He tried so hard and became this kind of incredible master. And so for someone like, you know, Hendrix isn't a good example, but for someone like maybe the Beatles to come back and write simple songs and and just attain huge popularity with, you know, three chords was, was an affront. It was an offense. So it seems like we hear guitar less and less on the radio now. You can argue with that if you want to. But um, why are the contributions of uh, Les Paul and Leo Fender still important? How do you think they change things? I think I would say two things. The greatest significance of this is kind of they empowered individual musicians in a way that had not really been done before. You know, previously when you were a kind of musician professional, you were one of many, right? You were one of 12 in the band. Or maybe you were a singer. Maybe you were a band leader. You were a conductor. After the age of kind of the small rock and roll group, you know, every musician kind of had their own power to address the crowd, had their own kind of identity in a way that I think they didn't before. The other thing is, you know, Les Paul really through his work on multi-track recording, pioneered the use of the recording studio as an instrument in itself, which is so much about how music is made these days. I mean, Mm. we don't even think about it, but that every musician now has basically a recording studio on their laptop and record themselves layering different pieces of music over one another to create a song. Les was the first to do that way back in, you know, 1947. And that's just like how we do it now. So I think that's an incredible legacy that he's left us. Ian Port is a music journalist. He's the author of the book, The Birth of Loud, Leo Fender, Les Paul, and the Guitar Pioneering Rivalry That Shaped Rock and Roll. Ian, thank you so much. Thank you. Kiss me once, then kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. If you want to read more about the drama of Dylan going electric and the person who actually yelled Judas at him, we will have a link to an article about that on our website, innovationhub.org. And remember, we've also got a playlist there of all the songs that we featured in this interview, including this one, which is It's Been a Long, Long Time, Bing Crosby singing, Les Paul playing guitar. How empty they all seemed without you. So kiss me once, then kiss me twice. Then kiss me once again It's been a long, long